right. Hey, this morning we're talking about altered. So our word of the year, and we're in the series of altered, of how you can't come to the altar without being altered, without being changed. And so this morning we're going to be talking about the power of God, his omnipotence. How many believe in this room that we serve an all-powerful God? We serve an all-powerful God. He is all-powerful and he created the heavens and the earth, and he created you and me perfectly the way you are. So he has all the power in the world to do whatever he wants, but he gave you free choice to come to church today, to freely choose him, and that's a wonderful, all-powerful God that we serve. Can we say amen to that? Good stuff. Well, it's so good to be in the house today. Um, I was a youth pastor before I was an executive pastor before I came here from New York, but before that I was a youth pastor. And so I served on a church on Long Island called Shirley Assemblies of God. And Shirley Assemblies of God, my grandfather was the pastor of that church for 40 years at a single church. 40 years at Shirley Assemblies of God. And after college, my wife and I got married. We moved back up to New York for a different reason. And my grandfather called me and he said, hey son, would you be interested in being a youth pastor, my youth pastor. And so my wife and I prayed about it, and we fought the calling into ministry, and so we moved to Long Island, and we went into youth ministry on Long Island. Now, how many of you have teenagers, had teenagers, or just parents in general? Raise your hand. How many know being a parent to a teenager requires the Holy Spirit? Amen? The Holy Spirit needs to anoint you on a daily basis Youth pastors need discernment. and holy. We weren't even parents when we were youth pastors yet. And let me tell you, there were some challenging teenagers. Challenging in every way, emotionally, mentally, just challenging. And there's one particular teenager who uh, was very challenging. I remember him to this day. We still keep in contact. His name is Jordan. And he challenged me in so many ways. And one particular way I challenged him was he loved the NBA so much. He was just a fan of the NBA. But the problem wasn't that he was a fan of a single team. He was a fan of multiple players, not multiple teams, multiple players. He would choose a player that he liked. He would buy their jersey, and he would cheer for them. And so what bothered me was he had so many players that he cheered for that it didn't matter if they had a bad game because he would just turn to the next player who he was cheering for, and he would be perfectly fine. He had no dedication to one team. He had dedication to a number of different players, so he never felt the anguish of defeat. And as a fan of a sports team, that bothers me. It bothers me because in order to be a true fan in my book, you have to feel the highs of the highs and the lows of the lows. You hear me? You understand? You have to know the celebration of victory, but also the anguish of defeat. And so this kid, Jordan, did not feel the anguish of defeat because he would just cheer for another player. He was like, oh, he had a bad game. That's okay. Tonight, another player is playing that I'm cheering for. He's going to have a good game. And of course, what players did he cheer for? The best players. Only the players that do outstanding every other game anyways. So he never felt the defeat and the anguish. And I told him to his face, you are not a real fan. He said, yes, I am. And you are not. He would wear a Knicks jersey one night. The next night, he would put a Brooklyn Nets jersey on. I mean, come on. I told him, choose a side. 
be loyal and go with one team. Choose a side because what you're doing now is an insurance policy on your emotional state and feelings. It's an insurance policy of not feeling the anguish of the feet. It's an insurance policy of knowing that no matter what happens, you're going to have an okay night. A real sports fan to me knows what it feels like if your team loses, it ruins your night. That's what it's supposed to feel like. It ruins your night. He didn't feel this. There is an investment that affects your life. And, and similarly with that, we can relate that to the Bible. The Israelites walked through many seasons of life where they had a dilemma of choosing God or choosing something else. They were oftentimes faced with the challenge of investing in their emotional, physical, mental state with God or with relying on what's around them in themselves. We're going to find ourselves today in 1 Kings chapter 18. And the context around that is that the Israelites were in a place where they were serving God, but there was a severe drought in the land. It was a three-year drought. So an interesting part of the Israelites is that the Israelites, when they were in slavery, they were in Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, the way that they produced crops was through the Nile River in the seasons. And so they had a constant flow, a constant season of how they would do their agriculture and they would produce crops. When they were led into the promised land, that completely changed because now they had to rely on rain. They had to rely on God giving them rain so that they could produce their crops. You see how that changes the mindset of having a seasonal constant flow of a river to now going into a land of which they needed rain from God so that they could provide for themselves. And so they found themselves in a season of which there was a severe drought. This drought was for three years long. And because of the drought was so long, they started to hedge their bets on other gods. So the surrounding areas around Israelites were the other people who did not serve God. They serve other gods, the false gods, the God of Baal. The God of Baal happens to be the God of rain and dew. And so they found themselves in a season where there was a complete drought, and they couldn't figure out why there was a drought, and they were crying out to God. They were asking God, send rain, but rain was not being sent. And so what did they do? They started worshiping other gods. And it probably happened slowly. The first year probably went by, and they didn't have rain, and they saw the suffering and the struggle, and they started worshiping other gods because that was available to them. And then they started more and more. And so by the third year, they found themselves in a place where they did not even serve God. They didn't trust him. And oftentimes, we find that place in our own hearts, in our own lives, where we can go through a struggle. We can go through a time of which we don't feel God. How many, knows, how many know your feelings lead you astray? Okay. All of you emotional buyers should know that. Don't go make a big emotional purchase based on your feelings, okay? Do your research. Don't go buy a car because you're having a bad day, right? Isn't that, that's a good example. If you have a bad day at work, you probably shouldn't go buy a car that's going to be an investment for the next 10 years, okay? Your feelings can sometimes lead you astray. So sometimes when we don't feel God, we don't feel his presence, we feel empty, then we believe that God is not there. But oftentimes, when we don't feel God, that is the struggle that we need in our lives to pursue God, right? There is a pursuing aspect of knowing God is in my heart, even when I don't feel him, of pursuing him to search for him. 
And so these Israelites were in a place where they did not feel God. They didn't see physically his presence, his provision for their lives. So they started to doubt God. And instead of through the struggle, trusting in God more, through the struggle, they started separating themselves from God more. That is a challenge for you and me today. That just because you go through a struggle, just because your faith is tested often, does not mean you should draw away from believing in God, but that should mean you are pursuing his presence even harder, even more in your life, because we serve an all-powerful God. Either we serve an all-powerful God or we don't. There's no in-between. It's not, oh, he's all-powerful for this search situation, but he's not powerful enough for this situation. It's either he is or he isn't. And so when we decide to choose to believe in the all-powerful God, that is all in, regardless of the struggle. You see, in 1 Kings chapter 18, in verse 1 through 2, it says, After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. That's what they desperately needed. This is Elijah the prophet. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. We're going to jump down to verse 20. And now it reads, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Do you see how powerful of a statement that is? The people said nothing. Sometimes saying nothing is saying something. Sometimes your silence is an action. Sometimes saying absolutely nothing is getting the exact point across. The people said nothing when Elijah said, who are you going to serve? God, the God who has performed miracles on your behalf in your whole history is a miracle in itself that he has proven himself time and time again. Or Baal, who's proven nothing to you. Who do you choose? Israelites said nothing. So what happens? Elijah has this standoff on Mount Carmel. So Elijah, all confident in God's power, says, okay, I hear you, Israelites. I hear, I see your lack of faith, I will show you the power of God. So he calls the 450 prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah. He tells them, let's sacrifice an offering on the altar and see whose God sends fire down to burn that sacrifice up. Let's see, let's have a contest. Let's see who the real God is. Is it your God or my God who's going to throw fire down onto the altar and burn everything up? And so that's exactly what they did. Elijah said, okay, prophets of Baal, you go first. So the prophets of Baal, they come up. They spend all day doing their religious rituals. They were enthusiastic. They were doing their, whatever they did, they were very enthusiastic because what was happening? Nothing was happening. So they thought they needed to try harder. Why isn't Baal throwing fire down from heaven? I must be doing something wrong. So they started doing other things by cutting themselves. Like, where did you get that from? Why would cutting yourself make your God happy? And so they started cutting themselves. And Elijah, seeing this happen, he says, maybe you need to wake your God up. Maybe he's sleeping. Where is your God? Elijah starts taunting them because nothing is happening. And so they're enthusiastic. They're doing all of the rituals all day. Nothing 
happens. Why? Because it's a false god. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Before this happened, Elijah got his sacrifice ready. He built the altar of 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And not only that, Elijah had everyone pour buckets of water three times over the sacrifice, over the altar, over the stones and the wood. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to show the full power of God. So after all of this was over, he stepped up, he stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the waters in the trench. And when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Amen to that. You don't defeat Baal with arguments, with rationalization. You defeat Baal, the false gods, by the power of God. Elijah built an altar that attracted fire from heaven. Why? Because he had the courage to pray bold prayers. In verse 36, it says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. I want to remind you of something this morning. Activity and enthusiasm are not always signs of spirituality. Emotionalism is not a sign always of spirituality. We can attend services that can be very emotional during worship, and that is good to an extent. But when it becomes the point of worship, if you're enthusiastic about worship and not enthusiastic about who you are worshiping, then that's idolatry. You can go to a church and experience the smoke, the worship, the word, and it'd be all great with the wrong intentions about emotions. When our emotions aren't connected to the spirit of God, then it's false. See, the activity, the enthusiasm of the prophets of Baal displayed a lot of enthusiasm, and and, and that was on Mount Carmel, but they were sincere in their efforts, but not sincere in their efforts of worshiping the right God. They were sincerely wrong. Did you know you can go to church and be sincerely wrong? You can go to a church and worship and be off. Mount Carmel proved that enthusiasm and spirituality out of order does not represent bold prayers. But when we are in tune with the Holy Spirit, when we are in tune with God, spirituality, the presence of the Holy Spirit does empower The manifestations of the Holy Spirit do happen, but that's when you are in tune with God and serving God and you are right with God, not when you're trying to create a show for God. There is an aspect of spirituality that is wrong and out of order, but there's also an aspect of spirituality that's pushed away because it's uncomfortable, but that's the manifestations of God. The Spirit is alive and it works, and boldness of the Spirit comes in the place of confidence. We saw Elijah 
in verse 27, he starts to taunt them. He says, shout louder. Surely he is God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling, maybe sleeping, and he must be awakened. How, how does Elijah have this confidence? He has a confidence because of his relationship with God. This reminds me of the many times in sports history of some of the most incredible athletes that have the confidence knowing that they're going to win. So in 1991, Michael Jordan, he steps up to the free throw line and he looks Matumbo in the face. Matumbo is terrible at free throws. So what does Michael Jordan do? He was a master at taunting. Michael Jordan steps up to the line. He closes his eyes, shoots the free throw, and of course it's a swish. Right in front of Matumbo, who obviously has fouled a lot because he's a big guy, who obviously struggles with free throws. Why did he do that? Why did he taunt him? Because he had confidence in his ability, right? Babe Ruth, 1932 World Series. It's a famous. He steps up to the plate. What does he do? He points his bat to the exact place he's going to hit a home run. What does he do? He hits a home run exactly where he pointed. That is confidence in your own ability of knowing who you are, what you're doing, and you're prepared. There is a confidence in Elijah knowing that he heard from God and he was prepared for the spiritual battle. Why does he have confidence? Because there is obedience in his heart. He has confidence because God told him to do something and he obeyed. Something happens when we obey God. The confidence comes when we obey God. Verse 36, he says that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. When we do things on God's command, it takes faith Encourage the object of faith is the most important thing because faith can be misplaced. Faith is not the most important thing. That might strike you as odd or blasphemy what I just said, but it's not paramount. What's paramount is the object of faith. That is the most important thing. You see, the people, the prophets of Baal certainly had faith in Baal. They certainly had faith because they worshipped all day. They did all of, all of their rit rituals all day because they thought Baal was going to come down in fire. They had faith in Baal, but their faith was misplaced because their faith was worthless because the object of their faith is worthless. That's sometimes a problem with us. Our object of faith is worthless when it's not placed in God. We can find ourselves placing our faith in other things. We can place our faith in our own ability. I can do this. I'm the provider. Look at my success. Look at my job title. Look at my family. Look at my material possessions. Look at my health, right? You can put faith in many other things and start chipping away at your faith in God. Faith in other things, the object of your faith is what's important. When you put your faith in God, the object of your faith in God then everything falls into place. But when you start putting your faith into other things, then you start having a performance-based acceptance. And that's what religion is. Religion is, I obey, therefore I am accepted. That's why you can have so many people from so many different denominations, religions, go to a religion and it's based off of their performance, based off of their checkoff list. I went to church today, I took communion, check, I am good with God. I got baptized in water, check, I'm good with God for the rest of my life. I go to church, I give to the church, I do all of these things. Even different religions say their, their performance-based acceptance is based off of all the rituals and things that they do. But the reality, the gospel is that I am accepted, therefore I obey. 
I'm accepted because Jesus paid the penalty for my sins, for my life. And because of that love and appreciation I have for Jesus, that is the reason I come to church. That is the reason why I take communion. That is the reason why I was baptized, because I am already accepted. Jesus already paid the price. Therefore, I will obey him out of love. Do you get that? It's not based on anything you can do. You cannot earn your way into heaven. There's nothing about your life that can earn your way into heaven because you are not perfect. I'm sorry, you're not perfect. You're not a perfect person. You're never going to be perfect. And all of you parents who have children know that your children were born not perfect. They are, you are sinful. It is just who you are. You're created with sin in your life. And that's okay because God didn't create you to be perfect. He already created Jesus who was perfect, who died on the cross for your sin. That is why you don't have to obey to be accepted. You obey because you're already accepted for who you are. Amen to that, church. Come on. Jesus paid the price for your sin. All you have to do is humble yourself before Jesus. You don't have to live up to a certain standard of which you put place in your life. God is not looking at you and say, up, oh, you sinned. Because you sinned and you didn't, uh, you didn't do this list of covenants or Hail Marys or prayers, and I'm not going to forgive your sin. No. When you sin, it's a humility before God and say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sin. Forgive me of my sin, and you're forgiven. Come on, that's good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's obeying Jesus because he paid the price for you already. That's what the relationship with Jesus is. Boldness to obey comes at an acceptance of what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. So when we look at 1 Kings chapter 18, we notice that the end of this verse uh, lines up perfectly with Elijah's prayer. In the end, it says, verse 24, the God who answers by fire... He is God. There's something paramount. There's something incredible about the symbolism of fire that represents God's power in our lives and in Scripture. God who answers by fire at the command of Elijah's prayer. God hears us. God's always there for us. You see how Elijah taunted the God of Baal, saying maybe you need to wake him up. Because the reality, he was teaching the Israelites that God's not sleeping. God doesn't need to be reminded about what's going on. God knows there's a drought in Israel. God knows your circumstances in your life. You don't have to pray to God to remind him of what's happening in your life. No, that already is known. God knows what's happening. It's your humility before God that creates the power of God before you. It's the humility before God and saying, God, you know my life circumstances. You know where I'm struggling. Help me grow in my struggle to grow in faith in you so that at your command, you can use me as a tool and a vessel. The power of God is at your command when the Holy Spirit isn't filling you, church. We have access to the advocate and the power of God. But why did God answer by fire? Why was that the symbol of his answer? It's because he wanted his people to know him. There's a bold interpretation, a bold knowledge and understanding of what happens when a miracle happens. In verse 37, it says, answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Throughout this scripture, it talks about knowing God. So not only the promise of God, not only God answering prayer, but how would the people know God? And so Elijah calls upon God for this miracle of fire coming down 
so that Israelites would know who he has, have knowledge of who he is. If Elijah had a purpose, in, or Elijah had a purpose in mind, and that purpose was a supernatural demonstration for God's power to be seen and to be known for the Israelites to know because they forgot about God. They forgot his power. It was three years of a drought that they had not seen the provision of God. And so the three years of drought created doubt within their lives and they forgot about the power of God. We walk through seasons of life where we forget about his true provision of God in our lives. Sometimes we struggle so much that we doubt God's presence in our lives, or even we think God intentionally places this struggle in our lives. God is not the cause of all your problems, okay? Sin in the world is the cause of all of your problems. God is not the cause of the struggle in your life. There's sin in the world that is the cause of struggle in your life, okay? God reconciles that struggle when he shows up when we need him the most. God reconciles that struggle through the death of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have an eternal perspective that yes, our struggle might be hard, but our struggle is temporary. Eternity is forever. You understand that? So maybe we don't feel God sometimes. Maybe we don't see God's presence or see his provision, but that doesn't mean that God hasn't provided and won't provide for you in the future. That just means right down right there in your struggle, you need to draw closer to God. You need to have more faith in him, knowing that the eternal perspective is forever and it's not temporary, just like your life is temporary. Your eternal life is forever. So when God acts in the miracles, acts in the miraculous, it is a sign pointing to God. So sometimes the miracles don't just end with the miracle. The miracle always needs to be pointed back to the glory of God. So whenever people cry out to God for a miracle, that is great. And I believe fully in miracles, fully in divine healing, fully in the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the end. The signs and wonders of God are to show glory and knowledge of God. It is the point back to God that this is happening. That is why so many people, whenever a tragedy happens, start praying to God. They're praying for a miracle. But as they pray for that miracle, I want us to be reminded that when a miracle happens, it's to be pointed back to God, to glorify God, to give the credit to God, to have the knowledge of God, of his omnipotence, the knowledge of the all-powerful God. See, we can either serve an all-powerful God or serve a God who is not all-powerful. There's no... It's either or, or. There's no middle ground. So if we believe in God being all-powerful, then we must believe that miracles still happen. And if we believe and pray for miracles that still happen, we must see those miracles, rejoice in them, and point back to the miracle worker. See, the miracles are not because of you and me. The miracles are you and me on behalf of God. The nation was perishing because of lack of knowledge in God. And Hosea 4.6, it says, my people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. That's Elijah's concern for the Israelites. That's my concern for our people, that we can be destroyed by the lack of knowledge of God, the lack of faith in God, the lack of his presence in our lives. So despite the previous miracles within the Israelites' lives of getting to the point of where they were at, that three-year struggle created them to not being able to answer Elijah when he said, will you choose God, the one true God, or Baal? They said nothing. Why did they come to a point where they said nothing? Because they had a lack 
of knowledge of the power of God. Some of you come to church all the time. Some of you come to church once a month, once every six months, maybe just for Christmas and Easter. Some of you recognize God, but you don't have the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God in your heart, the knowledge of God of his power. Right? Nowhere in scripture does it ever say the power of God stops when the Bible was stop, stops, when the Bible ended being written. Nowhere in scripture does it say the power of the Holy Spirit the power, the miracles of God ends when revelation ends. Now we believe in the full power of God that continues working in our lives to this day. We still believe in the power of God that still provides miracles for us this day. We believe as a Pentecostal church and as part of the family of multiplied churches, we believe that the infilling and power of the Holy Spirit is a representation of the manifestations of God through us. You see, there was a practical need that happened that was going on. So Elijah wanted to impart knowledge to the Israelites that God was still powerful. That's what happened when he went to the altar, when he built the altar, the power of God came down in a miraculous way. But the land still needed rain. The Israelites saw God's power through fire, but it didn't fill a practical need. So what did Elijah do after he proved that God was God? What did he do? He put the formula back to practice. He he prayed, he obeyed, and he had knowledge that God was going to come through. So in 1 Kings, verse 41, it says, Elijah climbed on the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. In verse 45, meanwhile, as Elijah is praying, meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, and a heavy rain started to fall. It started falling. Before the rains of refreshing comes, sometimes, oftentimes, always, there needs to be the fire of judgment that needs to fall. The fire was spectacular. It was necessary. It was a force to show the acknowledgement of God's power, but it was the repentance of the Israelites. When they fell to the ground and repented before God, when they fell to the ground and acknowledged that he is the one true God, that he was saying repentance and the judgment of God through fire comes first and the reign of the blessing comes next. You see how the order, the systematic order of how that works? Repentance, acknowledging God, then his blessing. The fire, although it was very awesome, did not, it did not fill their practical and dire need. You can have all the fire you want, but it doesn't solve a drought. What was needed was the rain. God's presence comes as a response to repentance, church. Can we stand to our feet this morning? That is required for the Holy Spirit. In order for miracles to work within our lives, in order for us to acknowledge God and, and need his presence, we need to repent, right? The fire of judgment, it's a symbolic way of judgment, that fire has to come first before the rain of blessing comes in our lives. We can't come to God and ask for the Holy Spirit if we have unresolved in our hearts, if we have sin in our lives, we can't expect the power of God to come and flow through, flow through us. We have to be repentant first before the rain of his blessing comes. You see in Acts chapter two, there's a powerful representation of fire coming from heaven, but it has, it's as a tool that it works in and through his people. It's the Holy Spirit that comes at Pentecost. And it reads, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing and violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
they saw what seems to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues as the Spirit enables them. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is a manifestation of God's power working within His people. See, the Holy Spirit was sent as an advocate for you and me. The Holy Spirit was sent so that we could be bold and courageous in our faith because boldness takes hearing God's command and following through with that. And so the Holy Spirit is an advocate of which we receive from God something that we don't have ourselves. It's an advocate of which we speak out, we praise out. The manifestations of the Spirit are alive and well today, and we believe in the miracle-working God. So when we pray for people, when we lay hands on people, when we ask for a divine healing, we are praying to an all-powerful God that intervenes on our behalf because we're not good enough. You and I are not good enough for that, but God is good enough and He works in and through us as a vessel. So when we humble ourselves and acknowledge God's power, that is when He works in and through us and the Holy Spirit then baptizes us and then fills us. That is what the Holy Spirit is about, church. It is a fire sent from heaven as an advocate to empower you for your faith. It's an advocate that is available on your behalf that God sends for you. And it's not something we shy away from, and it's not something crazy, because it's orderly, it's scriptural, and it doesn't say it ends. In fact, it's very available for us today. The miracles of God are still working. The fire of God is still a sign of His power. And that sign of His power is alive and well, and it is available for you and me this day. So as our worship team leads us into another song, can we just be available for a second? Can we raise our arms? Can we pray and be available for the Holy Spirit? And Pastor Zach's gonna come up and he's gonna end our service and he's gonna give you some directions, but that means that you have to be available for the power of God to rest on you. Can we do that this day? Let's continue to worship for a moment. 